football on off the ball. I think he's a great footballer, but as a captain of Manchester United, I think you just have to have a little bit more about you to lead that team, especially a team that's not used to winning. Join in the obsession. Subscribe now at offtheball.com forward slash join. The F1 pod on Off The Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One? Yeah, we go to town on it. Okay, you're very welcome back to the F1 pod on Off The Ball. It is episode 10. We're into the double figures and the double digits now. Weekly between now and the end, on the end of the season, after the race weeks, of course, live on Wednesdays in the F1 pod podcast feed and the Off The Ball daily podcast feed as well, wherever you get your podcasts. The F1 pod on Off The Ball brought to you by Chicago Town Pizza. Real takeout taste for less with Chicago Town. As always, keep your questions coming into myself, Shane Hannon, on Twitter at ShaneHannon01. And we have back uh, a very familiar pairing on uh, the F1 pod with us so far. We have Bernie Collins, the F1 pundit and former head of race strategy for the Aston Martin Formula One team. And of course, John Watson, former Formula One race driver himself as well. Bernie and John, how are things? Good, thank you. How are you? Flying it, flying it. Thanks for, thanks for hopping on as per usual. Um, uh, busy enough race weekend last weekend, I think it's fair to say, Bernie, and an exciting one and uh, one that Ferrari, I suppose, will look back on with um, with pleasantries, I'd imagine. Yeah, I think it was a good a good run for Ferrari. I don't think people were expecting them to be so close, particularly in that first stint. Um, with the stop on a brilliant qualifying, you know, they couldn't have asked for more from a qualifying result really there uh, in Monza. And being allowed to fight right the way to the end was definitely left some people um, a bit nervous, I'd imagine. Yeah, it was one of those, John, that uh, you kind of you like to see those little battles. We all we sometimes forget in the in the Max Verstappen loving and and right, we should give him plenty of love and plenty of uh, I guess praise. But uh, it's nice to see some battles every now and again. Yes, first of all, it's great to see another ma- another manufacturer in full position. And being Monza, who else could it be but Ferrari? And a great qualifying from Science and from Leclerc. Max was on the front row of the grid within you know such a small margin, but it was a great way to set up an Italian Grand Prix at Monza. For me, one of the most fabulous racetracks, one of the most fabulous locations to hold a Grand Prix. And if you sit in the tribunes facing the pits and watch a Formula One car go past at over 200 miles an hour, you realise this is what Formula One is all about. Not Mickey Mouse, 90 degree, you know, 30 mile an hour corners. Monza, a lot of sculpture canes, for me, is just one of the greatest venues for a Grand Prix in the world. But what makes it so good for a, for a driver, John? What's, what's different about Monza? Principally, it's the high speed. Over the years, the circuit has been, uh, let's say, adjusted. They've tried to slow it down. They first of all introduced chicanes before the Kerber Grande because without that, you'd go from out of Parabolica all the way down, or in some cases, you'd come off the banking because sometimes the Italian Grand Prix combined the banking and the road track. So you'd come thundering past the pits down to Kerber Grande. In the good old days, there was a lift, probably a gear shift, maybe a brake, because you were doing 170 or 80 miles an hour in those days, but you had as much downforce as my hairbrush has got. So it would be impossible to go through Kerber Grande as the cars do today. Then to slow the cars down into Lesmo 1, again, they introduced a chicane, which is a bit of a, a stumble type of chicane. A lot of incidents occur, as we saw this weekend, going into, into the second chicane. Lesmo 1, lovely corner, still much the same. Lesmo 2, corner I know very well, uh, has been changed and it's much slower to basically, because they couldn't extend the runoff area on the outside of the circuit. It's a public park and the authorities said no 
you can't go any further out. You've got to change the layout of the corner. Then the Ascari chicane. Uh, that is a good chicane. It's more like three quick corners. But when I raced in Monza in 1971, there was no chicane there. So from Lesmo to all the way down to Parabolica in the Formula 2 car, slipstreaming like mad, it was how the circuit was. Is it a tough one to plan for from a, from a race strategy perspective as well, Bernie? Or is it one of those races you kind of look forward to in the calendar? It has its challenges, definitely. You know, the, I think the particular challenge in Monza often comes in qualifying. You know, John mentioned it there, the slipstream. Every car is trying to get out of the garage last, but you're still trying to beat the clock to not get the checkered flag at the end. So it is one particularly where your position in the pit lane and, and strategy and qualifying becomes really important. It, we tend to have months as a one-stop race. So, you know, from that side on strategy is not necessarily that key, but we had see, we did see some differences this weekend with the hard start tyre for some, and some actually switched into a two-stop, which, which didn't work out in the end. But for me, the challenge, the pressure always came on qualifying day because you want that perfect toe. You don't want to miss a checkered flag. You want someone who's a little bit quicker ahead of you in qualifying, but not so much quicker they're driving away, but not slower to be slowing you down. So it's real, really difficult to get that perfect position in qualifying because if you end up behind a slower car, obviously the closing through the lap, you just ruin your lap time as well. So it's really difficult compromise to get. Is it tough to be critical, Bernie, of those teams that adopted the two two stop strategy and, and for whom it didn't work? I guess hindsight is is twenty twenty, but um, could they have made a different decision at the time? It definitely, you know, hindsight. I hate it as a strategist when people said, "Well, we should, what you should have done." That's obviously clear now, but so many teams switched to it. There was obviously reasons for it. I think the degradation was higher. The track temperature was higher. Um, from some were pushed into a slightly earlier stop, thinking that they would undercut other cars because of it. Um, there was a bit of a tree in from DRS. So I can see why you maybe stop early to get out of that. But that didn't work. And we've had many examples in the past where that's not worked, stopping that much earlier, losing tire temperature. And particularly, I think maybe Lance Stroll was the worst at it, losing tire temperature at the end on that really long, hard tire stint, get lapping events, then you get overtaken, your day just goes from bad to worse. Um, But still, the one stop was better than the two stop. So it is difficult in those situations with that really hot track temperature to sort of foresee where the race might end up. From the, the race it, itself, John, I guess um, we, we'll come back to Max Verstappen and right we should, but the Tifosi, I think with the story of the weekend, um, a really incredible bit of action, especially between their own two drivers, Sainz and Leclerc. I guess it's what we want to see from Ferrari. We just don't see enough of it, maybe. No, and the Italian Grand Prix is always a very special Grand Prix, potentially because of the focus upon Ferrari. And Ferrari had to stand up and deliver, certainly, first of all, in qualifying, which they did, and to a very great extent, they did in the, in the race itself. But ultimately, the pace of Red Bull and what Max has been doing all through the year, the Red Bull is just and Max are just simply overall quicker. But it took a number of laps for him to get up onto the back of science and eventually find his way through, which he did. And once he had done that, he was in control. And then Ferrari were probably into balancing and managing their tyre situation where Max didn't seem to have that issue quite to the same degree. It's funny, Bernie, because we, we, we often um, in recent maybe seasons have seen Ferrari calling fights off between their, their drivers. If they, if they get close, maybe they, did, they don't let them go to battle, I guess, too much. But um, certainly some hard battling at the weekend and maybe a change of tact in that regard. 
Yeah, I think so. I think it was it was great to see that continue from a pure spectator point. I imagine on the pit wall, you're looking pretty nervous. And part of me spends some of the races thinking, how are Ferrari going to get this wrong this weekend? And you could just imagine the two drivers taking each other out right at the end of the race would be <laughs> quite a shock for all of those at home. But lovely to see it continue and good to see some, some good fighting, some overtaken from those guys. Interesting, you know, what John mentions there at the start, trying to defend from, from Verstappen, I think, hurt Ferrari ultimately in the overall race because they're pushing a bit harder than maybe he's totally comfortable and suffer a bit more degradation on that first stint, whereas the second stint just running at their own pace did look a bit stronger. Um, but yeah, brilliant to see, um, you know, Fred's attitude there, let them fight a little bit, give the home fans what they want. The Monza is a spectacular podium in particular because the fans are all underneath it. And I imagine with a Ferrari driver on it, that really adds to it. Mm-hmm. One as a team, you know, representative of a different team when you're coming in and out, it's always a struggle to get in and out of the gate because there's so many fans there and you're trying to fight your way through in green when everyone's just looking for someone in red. Um, but it is a really special atmosphere and they'll have really enjoyed having a Ferrari driver on the podium. Yeah, I think those scenes at the end where everyone's shouting Carlos signs his name on, on the podium and Charlotte Claire is, is is behind the gate signing autographs. Really, really amazing scenes to see at Monza. Uh, definitely adds to the atmosphere when you see the red, I'd imagine. John, that, that's an interesting point as well. Uh, like from Bernie, mentions Fred Vasseur by name. And the thing is, I suppose he he's coming at this from a racing driver's perspective in that, you know, he's kind of ripped up the, the rule book with Ferrari this year since he's taken over. And, and I guess if you have a driver at the helm, or someone who was a driver or certainly understands driving, they let those battles ensue. Well, I think there's a bit of a change indeed. Uh, but principally, Charles Leclerc is a very, very quick driver, certainly in qualifying, we know that. But there's been a number of unforced errors have come in to his driving over the last couple of seasons. And I think there's a big push coming from Carlos Sainz to say, look, give me my day in the sun. I think the difference also might be that in the past, when you had Michael Schumacher, or Fernando Alonso, Sebastian Vettel even, that the the order within Ferrari was very clear. A number one driver, those three I would have mentioned, and then the second driver. Now, Ferrari, would, Ferrari has denied, I know this back to the Michael Schumacher days when Rubens Barrichello was there, that anything existed in terms of team orders. But make no mistake, it was always Michael who, if he was in the race, was going to try and win that race. And if Rubens was running first, as you saw in Austria in 2000 and I think 2002, Rubens backed off out of the last corner to let Michael take victory. And there was a furore throughout the world about what a disgraceful uh, a view or approach to Formula One to do that to your driver who, by right, should have won the race. So that wasn't the case here this weekend, and I think it was all the better for it. But the, the telling story more about Ferrari was not so much about Max, but ultimately it was the pace of Sergio Perez, who had to come through the two Ferraris to end up on second place in the podium. That really summed up ultimately what the Italian Grand Prix was about. Yeah, Perez is is is, an, is someone that I know Bernie we've, we've spoken about with yourself before but I mean brilliant to see him back to uh, I I don't know if we're going to say his best but but certainly he's he's not far off it having had what probably by his accounts has been a disappointing enough season. Yeah, I think it's going to be a season not necessarily a two halves but definitely two stages. There was the start of the season where he was really close to max pushing really hard very close in performance, you know, at that stage build as a championship contender. And then there was that middle lull where the performance wasn't there, the results weren't there in a car that could have easily been there. And then he seems to have 
a few races before shutdown, turned that around again, back comfortable in the car. He described it himself as, you know, it is just not feeling like he needs to think about everything the car is going to do. It doesn't come naturally to him during that races. He was very hesitant on things. Even someone commented this week, not necessarily about um, Perez, but drivers not being fully comfortable on the brakes, having a break. I think it was actually Perez in that battle with the Ferraris, having a break a wee bit earlier, even though he's challenging for the overtake, not fully trusting that the brakes are going to do what he wants them to do when he gets into the corner. So definitely a form has returned. And hopefully that buys him going forward in the season. Next race being Singapore Street Circuit, we know that he enjoys. Um, so yes, it's 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 going to be, like I say, not two halves because it's not beginning and end, but there's been this bit in the middle that's really difficult. And if he can end well, I think we'll often forget about the piece in the middle and it's going to be how he finishes the season that's going to be important going forward. We mentioned the 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 pure madness of the the scenes after the after the race on 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 Sunday, Bernie. But the, like as someone who's kind of seen behind the curtain, involved in teams, is is that at Monza when it's at its peak? This craziness around drivers, the you know the the fans staying over at the Hotel de Ville to try and chant the the Ferrari drivers' names. Is it at its peak in in Monza, or maybe it's in Monaco? Or is this where you see the most, I guess, um, craziness? This is where you see a lot of it on the podium. You see a lot of it coming in out of the track. You definitely see, you know, and many of us don't often take the time to walk outside. At one point I did in Monza, you know, walk into the fans and have a little walk around. You sort of embrace the atmosphere. So Monza is definitely one of the high points. But you see many others. You see Brazil in particular, very strong turnout there. You see Japan, fans staying to watch pack up and things, you know, really embracing the F1. Maybe not the sort of, raw passion but really wanting to be there really taking it all in so I think there's a number of events through the year but I think the, the podium in Monza definitely those fans only after one thing you know that that's a, a difficult enough one John isn't it when you have two drivers like Carlos Sainz and Charlotte Claire who uh, by all accounts it's tough to separate them maybe sometimes uh, you know Charles may be favoured by by some top brass in Ferrari sometimes but they're really, it's tough to separate the two of them at times. So that, that can lead to some to fr- some friction sometimes between drivers. Yeah, so, but it's up to the team to control that. And Fred Vasseur, that's his responsibility. So you have to sit and talk to, you about, to both your drivers and explain to them what the facts of life are. And yes, we're going to permit you to race each other, but we don't expect you to take each other off and blow the whole show. So I mean, fundamentally, there was not a lot of nip and tuck between the two drivers, but they managed to more or less avoid any contact or anything that would have damaged one or both cars. So the, the drivers fulfilled their responsibilities. Fred Vasseur had a smile on his face, certainly after qualifying. And I think fundamentally he knew that uh, as good as the Ferrari was, the speed it had in the single lap over the duration of the Grand Prix, they probably were not going to be able to match. And as Bernie mentioned, that the thing about tyres, having to push harder in the, at that opening stint than they might have chosen to do, might have weakened them marginally. Uh, but overall, I'd give them a very, very high mark for a great return to competitiveness and certainly putting on a show that the fans loved around the world. I think um, just to come in on, on that point, you know, Fred's come from a very different elk. Fred's come from a midfield, back of field team. And from my experience in those teams, you can't have a number one driver. Your number one driver is the guy who's currently in the lead of whatever position you're in because you can't just give up points that easily. You can't be switching the car. You don't have the capacity to do that. So you just back the horse that's currently running first. 
And it seemed a bit like that with Brad. He was happy for them to figure out who was going to be in the league themselves. And then that person would get full support, be it from strategy, given the preferred stop lap, whatever it is. But teams further down the grade often don't run this number one and number two driver because we just don't have the overhead for that. Yeah, no, it's a fair point. Um, and something people often don't think of, you know, that, that that's an attitude, I guess, that teams have to have. Fred Vasseur has clearly brought something fresh and new to, to Ferrari, though, and that's that's great to see, I think, for, for fans of Ferrari, many of whom are in this country. Um, the the Red Bull numbers and stats and records, guys, just keep just keep going. Uh, you have to go back to, to November and the Sao Paulo Grand Prix uh, to find a, a race that Red Bull didn't win. So it's now 24 of the last 25 races Red Bull have won, 31 of the last 35 um, also becomes the first team to win 15 Grand Prix consecutively and then Max Verstappen I mean this is now the, the, the most dominant streak any driver has ever had in Formula 1 in terms of 10 race wins now um, John it's just it's just an incredible achievement and who knows where it ends well I don't see any reason for it to change it'll, it'll be factors beyond maybe the control of the team or control of Max I mean obviously the start of a Grand Prix somewhere like Singapore going into that very tight little chicane thing at the end of pit straight is always an area where well, we've seen Max get involved in an incident some years ago. It's going to be things which are unpredictable that might actually end this winning streak. But th- there has been a significant seed change in Max's view and attitude since he's won that championship in 21 in Abu Dhabi. And since then, and particularly this year, he's showing up, for me, a maturity. And he's thinking a lot more. He knows he's going to, he's got the equipment to win. He doesn't need to be desperate to win it every corner, every single lap. He can plan what he wants to do. He's got a great team, great strategist in that team. So he's got all the assistance he needs. And as you saw in Monza, he waited until he knew it was the right time to make that overtake. And once he executed it, he was gone. Uh, is that maturity something you've seen develop, John, over the last number of years of Max? Like, uh, like uh, Obviously, we know what he was like maybe when he was a bit younger. He was quite volatile, but... Has that personality and demeanour changed noticeably in the last number of years? To me, it has. It's changed significantly since the end of 21 when he won the championship. And I refer always back. So the phone's ringing. Do you want to go on or not? No problem. You can continue on there. Yeah, that's no worries. So the, um, the I'm just trying to think. What he did at Silverstone in 21, that incident at Cotswold back with uh, Lewis, that was an avoidable situation, in my opinion. But Max had decided he was determined he was going to hang out on the outside with Lewis, and the consequence was the accident we saw. I don't think you're going to see Max doing that in the future because he has now established himself as now a two-time, a victory, two-time world champion. What more is he going to do? Does he need to prove any more? Because he's got the equipment, he's got the ability, he's young, he is driving extremely well, and the, the nearest threat to him has only really come from his own teammate. Can teams, Bernie, be doing anything else to to catch up with with Max Verstappen? Obviously, it seems that they're doing everything in their power to to win races and to get in their way, but it's just it's just not working. Is there anything any outside of the box thinking that teams might be sitting down and going, "Well, we need to do something completely different here"? I don't know to be honest because I was thinking just going into Monza. Monza's one where there's a different wing level to a lot of other races. A lot of people run a very low downforce wing. Often in the past, teams have run a specific Monza ring. It did one race a year and that was it. And I think there was, you know, resource restriction has stopped a lot of that. Now often teams don't have a specific wing for Monza because it just can't, um, it can't warrant the spend on it, for want of another word. 
But there was a few years ago, I think, that McLaren seemed to have just a Monza wing and did really well a Monza above all over the races. So barring a team saying, we're just going to get the car designed around this one particular track and our car is going to be mega at this track, but no good anywhere else. I don't really see it. And I think they are trying, you know, there's a big push to catch up. The regulations largely carry into next year. So they'll be doing everything they can, be it on a wind tunnel that's running next year's car or this year's car, and trying to bring all the innovations they can as early as they possibly can. But it's difficult to see, like like John says, Max seems to be driving within himself and like much calmer Max than we've seen in the past, making calculated decisions, not making errors. You know, I think it was before Monza weekend, the last fully dry weekend we had was Baku. And those wet, changeable conditions are one where you can easily, you know, go offline, put a wheel on the curb, whatever it might be, and have an accident very, very easily. And Max just hasn't made those mistakes because he's even able to drive so far within himself and within the car and still be confident that he can do it. You know, and even not to lose the head in Monza this weekend and say, oh, I'm not on pole. You know, an old Max would have spent that first stint raging that he was behind and not in P1, but actually this new version that we have is fit to say, okay, well, that's fit. we'll get him at the pit stop or we'll get him through strategy or we'll get him through whatever else the, the solution may be. And it will be interesting. At some point, the challenge will come, be that from Perez or from another team where that fight continues race on race and race and isn't just so easy. And it'll be interesting to see if the experience that Max has gained over these two years helps out in those situations. It's almost like the the plaster was ripped off with that battle with with Hamilton the year before, like almost Bernie, where you know he he has all this pressure to win the world championship and and gets that over the line. It's almost like the pressure seems to be off Max Verstappen at this stage, and as you say, he's still probably driving within himself. But but there is so much more that we are, are yet to see with him, which is scary. Yeah, I think so, and you know the he's got to feel or should feel potentially less pressure than a lot of other people on the grid. Because the buffer he has in the championship, the buffer that he has in the car piece over the other cars, the buffer that he even has to his teammate, that's got to be, or I don't know, John may become better than me, but that's got to feel like a pretty comfortable position. Everyone else within the paddock has to fight to get there. So if Max doesn't feel relaxed and comfortable now, there's not going to be a time to feel relaxed and comfortable. I know he's still trying to get a championship and I know people are still waiting for him to get it wrong. And there's, you know, all of the... Um, records that various people say they care or do not care about but I can't believe that people don't care about them he'll still be trying to get all those things but getting the next getting 11 in a row is a very different pressure to need in five points to win the championship I think I've not done it so it's just opinion but do you agree John? Well I think there's a lot of things going on in sort of Max's world and one thing that I think is very helpful to him is that he is just one thing. That's a mean, lean racing machine. That's all is in his life, really. That's all that matters. His personal life probably comes secondary. And he's not running around the world like Lewis, getting involved in other you know, creative activities, fashion, music. I mean, Lewis is now a global brand. He's the best, most famous Formula One driver in the world. If you went to North America and said, Hey, Max Verstappen, people might think, is that a new Belgian waffle or something? Can I buy it at my local store? He's not a global name in the way that Lewis is. And with that Lewis, it brings a lot of extra pressures. So if Max has only got to think about getting into the car, doing the job at the weekend, and maybe going out on a jet ski in Monaco and 
and amusing himself or going out with his little mate Lando, <sighs> boring, and having you know a nice dinner, a bit of pasta somewhere in Monte Carlo. That's what he's doing. That's his life is fundamentally very uncomplicated. Yeah, it's true. And 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 it could get even more, I mean, dominant because you're looking at I'm looking at the, some of the stats here. If he outscores Perez by 35 points between now and the end of the Japanese Grand Prix, uh he would equal Schumacher's record of six races remaining once the championship is won. So I mean, it's it's hard to see anyone beating Max Verstappen at the moment, and who knows, he could go the whole season unbeaten, which would just be insane and uh, totally unprecedented. We're going to take a, a very short break, guys, but it's it's episode 10 of the F1 pod and Off the Ball, uh, Wednesdays after race weekends, wherever you get your podcasts uh, in the F1 pod podcast feed and the Off the Ball daily podcast feed. We have Bernie Collins and John Watson will be back with you in just a second. Stay with us. Hello, Shane Hannon here, host of the F1 pod on Off the Ball, which is available every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get into the episode proper, however, I did want to take a quick moment to mention our sponsors of the F1 pod, Chicago Town Pizza. And sure, when you're watching the Grand Prix action across the weekend, why not enjoy it with a pepperoni Chicago Town stuffed crust pizza? It's takeaway taste at home. It's the F1 pod from Off the Ball with thanks to Chicago Town Takeaway's unique fresh dough pizza. Yeah, we go to town on it. Now, without further ado, the F1 pod. The F1 pod on Off the Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One. Yeah, we go to town on it. Okay, you're very welcome back to episode 10 of the F1 pod on Off the Ball Weekly on Wednesdays after F1 race weekends between now and the end of the season live in the uh, Off the Ball Daily podcast feed and the F1 pod podcast feed as well. Uh, wherever you get your podcast, as myself, Shane Hannon, we have Bernie Collins, the former head of race strategy with the Aston Martin Formula One team, and of course, the former Formula One race driver, John Watson. Um, John, we were speaking before we came on air about um, a certain young British driver called Lando Norris, and uh, a little bit of an incident, I think it's fair to say, between himself and um, and his teammate Oscar Piastri at the weekend. And uh, I mean, this crops up every now and again. We we do talk about it uh, quite often. But uh, Norris radioed earlier in the race to say he was the faster driver, asked for Piastri to pick up the pace. Um, were you surprised to see this? Well, I think he's got Foreman doing this. He did it, I think, previously. So I was, I think, with Daniel Ricciardo on one occasion, and maybe he's done it elsewhere. I mean, that, I think that Lando Norris is a, a manufactured race driver. Uh, the structure that was built around him at McLaren was paid for by investors in Lando Norris. And Danny Ricciardo came in, and I don't know what went wrong. It was just a disaster for Ricciardo. Um, and Lando Norris, I'm sorry, Oscar Piastri has come in, and I think Oscar Piastri is the genuine real deal. And for me, that he is the future of McLaren. And all this trivia that's going on in the media is Norris going to become teammate of uh, Max Verstappen at Red Bull? But look, he's got a, a solid two-year contract remaining at McLaren. And I don't see any team attempting to try and leverage him out of that because I just think financially it would be uh, not viable. But secondly, you know, Norris has never had a serious challenge in his Formula One career until this year. And Piastri is taking it to Norris. And maybe a bit of that is reflecting in some of the observations were coming from Norris now as he is under pressure. The thing I'm unhappy about, certainly in, I think, the Hungarian Grand Prix and here again at Monza, Norris got preference in the pit stops. And I don't know why that was, and I'm not particularly, uh, how would I say, happy about it. Um, and I think there were some comments from Piastri likewise, as he's getting the sort of the short end of the stick, maybe. Is that fair, fair Bernie, that um, maybe sometimes Lando seems to get 
preference over Piastri? Yeah, I think there was, you know, there was at least one instant we end up with an undercut, and I, arguably, to see him happen, I think, with Red Bull, with Perez and Verstappen in, in Holland. But sometimes there's good reasons for that, sometimes not. It's interesting, every driver that I've worked with, the driver behind always thinks he's faster than the driver in front. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not. And sometimes you have to make difficult decisions about is the guy behind genuinely in free or would he be quicker? Is he just wrecking his tyres trying to prove to you on the pit wall that he's quicker? And it's very difficult because of the DRS effect or the traffic effect. You never quite get the right answer. Um, But it is going to be a difficult challenge for McLaren to manage both Piastri has done enough, more than enough, in the start of this year to prove he deserves to be there, to prove that he deserves an equal shot at any pit stop decision, at any qualifying decision. And arguably, McLaren are just going to have to come back to, if the guy is ahead on track, he has preference at the pit stop. And all the teams have different rules, often very similar across the teams, but there needs to be a clear, what we would call a code of conduct what is the situation, be it? And for us at Aston, there needed to be a very exceptional reason to give the driver that was second on track the pit stop opportunity. It needed to be pretty exceptional. Um, or again, needed to be a pretty exceptional reason to switch the cars because in switching the cars, both drivers actually end up losing time. Mm-hmm. So very rarely is it the right thing for a team, even if you're on different strategies, because what ends up happening is you just switch once at the beginning of the race and then switch again at the end, so you end up losing time twice. So, but Piastri, uh, I don't know him personally, but, you know, managed by Mark Webber, they're not going to be a fool of a team. So they're going to push their own agenda as they should well. And like you, like, like John says, I think there's a great future there as a driver and it, stand on the ground the arguments that are happening in the background team now are going to make a big difference in the future and John as well on Piastri it, it seems to be uh, he's been very unlucky I know you've been a very, a very big fan and supporter of him certainly on, on this podcast talking about him different times he, he was putting up a post on social media after the race of the weekend and he says got to take the, the rough with the smooth sometimes um, and that's kind of been been the story of Piastri's season very unlucky to come away with no, with no points at the weekend Yes, I mean, it was unfortunate, and the contact, that was a very minor contact in the first chicane. Nevertheless, it was unfortunate. Then the second contact that uh, Oscar Pastry had when Lewis made that dive into the second chicane where his left front wing was then damaged, that was what took him out of the points. I mean, there's going to be uh, difficult times, I think, for McLaren over the remaining races because Piastri is pushing. The thing I like about Piastri is he, again, seems to have nothing else in his life except being a Grand Prix driver, where Lando Norris is all over social media. You can't go a day without having Lando here, Lando there, Lando's doing this. He is projecting himself as a personality, a celebrity. Oh, oh, sorry, I drive a Formula One car as well. Focus on your job. Social media you can deal with when it's important, but you've got a teammate now who's going to give you a real workout for the remaining part of the season. And you need to stop playing around with all this stuff that you seem to enjoy doing and endlessly keep doing and go to battle with Oscar Piastri. Otherwise, you're going to get your backside smacked. 
you think a lot of these drivers, like Lando, I suppose there is, uh, and to play devil's advocate with him, like I guess he's thinking about the career after Formula One. But but is 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 it too early to be thinking of that, John? Is that your point that maybe sometimes these drivers, you know, when it comes to the marketing side of things, they they I guess can leave that to their marketing teams and forget about it for now. Well, I think maybe because I'm an an old an ex driver, an old ex driver, and some would say an ancient ex driver. The, the the world of Formula One today, you take Netflix, for example, the amount of exposure Formula One has generated from that, and the fact that now people follow Formula One, not because of the cars as much, because of the people and the personalities that have evolved through Netflix and social media and appealing to you know, teeny boppers, 12 or 14-year-olds, a fan base that never existed before, because the fan base of Formula One was always middle 20s to your last drawing breath so he is choosing and selecting a market to you know to position himself with to be the star of that particular segment of the market yeah it's definitely something that they, they have to consider i guess as drivers the balancing act the the, the tightrope balancing act that is i guess increasing their profile but also winning races and uh, getting podiums um alex alban is a man we've we've mentioned again again on the podcast and uh, i think rightly so because I suppose Williams haven't been hadn't been fancied at the start of the year certainly to do a whole pile, but Bernie, I mean, Albon's performances again, um, brilliant and and picking up more and more points. Yeah, I think another you know excellent finish for them, and I, you just get the sense that they've had a you know a bad start to the year, not any worse than we expected, I think, because of where Williams had been historically. Um, but a team that's making changes, a team that. Alex is getting more comfortable within the team. James Foles is making differences within the team. They do seem to be improving. Now, people would argue that, you know, arguably coming into the season as the 10th quickest team, it's easy to make improvement. And yes, that is true. But they seem to have overstepped quite a few, taking points where others are dropping them, making smart decisions where they can, making the best of advantages that are thrown to them, be that weather and qualifying, whatever it is. So, yeah, and he just looks, when you see him in the paddock, he just looks comfortable, you know. He's focused, he's comfortable, he looks relaxed. He doesn't look under pressure. He, I think, him and the team seem to be working well together. And he's now in this position, very contrast to, you know, the time with Red Bull or whatever, very controlled, very, you know, content, happy, controlled, getting the position of the car to where he wants it to be. So, does look, yeah, he looks like, and it looks like it's content going to continue to improve, if anything, to the end of the year. Yeah, 100%. And, and, and it's kind of highlighted as well, John, when you see Logan Sarge and his teammate struggling a little bit. Um, you know, same car, but he was 13th, never really in contention for points. And, and he just, I mean, I think he was slowest after Q2, didn't even crack into Q3. So, when you see uh, your teammate, albeit Logan Sargent is a rookie, so you get you kind of have to give him a little bit of leeway, but it only serves to highlight Albon's performances. Yeah, I mean, I think it's only fair to give Logan Sargent a bit of leeway because he's come in. It's not a, it has it wasn't a competitive team at the beginning of the year, and he's learning on the hoof. And Alex Albon, I think certainly in the last number of events, has really, really impressed. He's shown great speed, and he's doing it in a, in a way which is again it comes back to to me. A focus is on he's there to do a job. That's to do the best he can with the equipment he has and to try and you know, get himself further and further up the grid. And he's achieving that. 
I mean, I'm, I'm watching, and I didn't see all of the qualifying in Monza because I was having to work myself for the weekend doing another race broadcast. But the little bits I saw, he was carrying lots and lots of speed with that Williams. And people are going, what, 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 what's, why, why is the Williams going quickly? Well, two reasons. There's been big strides made within the team. And I think James Bowles, his contribution, not in isolation, but in conjunction with all the other staff down at uh, Wantage. But I think, I think Alex Albon himself has just really seized that opportunity with a car that he's getting confidence in. And the more confidence you have, the quicker you're going to be able to drive that car. And he drove the wheels off in qualifying and in the Grand Prix. Yeah, for sure. Really, really impressive performance all around, you have to say. Uh, the, the really, really interesting comments that I, I, I mean, Toto Wolf and Christian Horner's tete-a-tete often um, brings a smile to my face. But um, Bernie, the comments from from Toto Wolf after this weekend were, uh, were something else. He says, for me, these types of records are completely irrelevant. He's speaking about the 10 in a row. Uh, for Max, they were irrelevant in our good days in Mercedes. I don't know how many races we won in a row, and I didn't even know that there was a count for how many races in a row you win. Um, I mean, you love you love to see it, don't you? Well, I just it's got to be a bit misplaced. I can imagine if it was the other way around, someone's coming to him in his office and saying, mm-hmm. you know, at this, you know, the press briefing for each team will be fully this weekend. If we win, we're going to be X number in a row or whatever it might be. Now, of course, there were times at Mercedes where the drivers were closer than they have been this year. But let's be clear, not closer than they were at the start of this year. So, you know, the first four or five races, I think it was two, three, Max and Perez. So, yes, Perez has taken a dive after that and Max has fully benefited from him. But to keep that focus is unbelievable. And I would be shocked if the shoe was on the other foot that Mercedes weren't selling it as this is our 10, you know, all of the marketing that, that Red Bull are doing with it. And of course we're talking about it. And of course we should talk about it because, you know, you are dry. It is, it is a sport. It is a sport where things can go wrong. It is a sport where you need to hold your focus, get behind, you know, week on week, not make mistake, not slip up on, reliability, strategy, pit stops, car. There's so many elements that come together that that it's not just the car. The car is quick, don't get me wrong. But even that, to have taken the same rules as everyone else and built a car that's that much stronger. And I think at one point a few races ago, there was a quote from Toto, if they finish second, you know, they can't win every year and they're aware of that. And finish second isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it is when you look at how far behind they are. So to have said that on one hand and then on the other hand say he doesn't care how many they win in a row is a bit counterintuitive. So I, that's maybe a bit off the cuff that he said that um, because I don't believe that any team in the pit lane is thinking we would happily take it if we were in that position of winning 10 in a row and we would be celebrating every single one. Uh, and and John, it's 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 kind of akin to comments with, that we heard from Lewis Hamilton at the weekend. He uh he was asked about Verstappen's achievement and he said uh, Max hasn't been paired against potent teammates um, who would give him a tough fight, um, essentially, as opposed to, the, I guess, the, the teammates that Hamilton has had over the years. And he also said that Verstappen's, uh, Verstappen's success has been blown up way out of proportion compared to his own. Um, I know people like Martin Brundle were coming out of the woodwork kind of saying you don't want to really hear those sorts of comments from, from Lewis. And if this was a tennis player, a football player achieving these things, they would rightly be lauded. So, I mean, in one on one hand, you want to see the kind of competitive spirit between the two, but but you also want to see achievements like this being praised. 
I think the comments by both people were disingenuous. Uh, the achievement, it's a new record. There, sometimes it's better to say less, you know, and just congratulate Max or congratulate Red Bull. Don't have to embellish it with anything else. Just say, you know, congratulations on it, on your achievement. That's and leave it there. But to start going through as Lewis did, well, he's never had a competitive teammate. Well, just some people might say that Valtteri Bottas wasn't a competitive teammate. Some people might have said even Nico Rosberg was certainly maybe more competitive than Valtteri Bottas, but was he really that competitive? He got lucky when he won his championship because Lewis had a lot of unreliability in 2016. Mm. You know, sometimes just say less, but be generous in saying congratulations, a wonderful achievement. Hundred uh, percent. I think most people will agree with that, and, and I think Max deserves all the all the praise he gets. One thing, one thing, Bernie, I wanted to ask you about uh, was the uh, the ATA, the alternative tire allocation. So this was something that came in, um, and and I guess it's involved in these new F one qualifying formats. For people completely unfamiliar with ATA, what exactly is it? What does it mean? Yeah, so it's basically, I think F one over the years and continues to try and you know find ways to reduce the carbon footprint, however that might be. You know. Arguably, we travel a lot around the world. We can't really get away from that with the championship that it is. So what can we do differently? And this is a way of trying to reduce the number of tyre sets over a race weekend, but yet keep each session with an amount of running and not lose too much. So the biggest effect that we see is is a qualifying um, Q1 on a hard tyre, Q2 on a medium and Q3 on a soft. And the reason for that being previously, we ran all of qualifying on a soft or in most weekends we run all of qualifying on a soft. And then that's soft very rarely used. You know, Monza was a one-stop medium hard race. So if it had been a normal qualifying, all those softs would have just gone in the bin after quali. Whereas now we see the hards or the mediums that were running qualifying use. So it seems two sets, I think it is, per driver, per weekend. But actually that really adds up if you could do it every year or every event um, for the year because, you know, that's eight tyres per car, 16 per team. And it starts to ramp up pretty quickly. And I think this was the first dry weekend we had seen it. We've still seen a lot of running in P1, albeit only one tyre set really used was the big difference. Um, so I think it's proved a potential there. I see that qualifying is potentially more interesting because drivers are having to step between the compounds and not just be quick on one tyre, but be quick on all three. That's obviously easier for the guys at the front to go through Q1 on a hard tyre, but there's always potential for that to go wrong. Um, so yeah, I didn't see a lot of downside to it this weekend. This weekend, as far as I'm aware, is the last weekend they were planning to run it this year. But it would be interesting to see if any of the learnings that we've taken from it carry over into next year. Yeah, for sure. The, the other news that came through, uh, we should mention, is uh, uh, the FIA coming out in the last couple of days saying all Formula 1 teams complied with the cost cap in 2022, which was interesting as well. Uh, so all 10 teams had all been issued certificates of compliance. Uh, this $140 million cap, £112 million. Uh, it also said there had been an extensive check of any non-F1 related activities. This, of course, comes... Um, from Red Bull last year, exceeding the limit, or in 2021, rather, by £1.86 million. Aston Martin and Williams were found uh, to have had procedural breaches those years as well. It uh, had been kind of rumours swirling in the last number of weeks that, that maybe at least one team had broken the cost cap again in, in 2022, but not the case, uh, according to this FIA report. So uh, I guess good news that no team has broken the cost caps. Um, we should take a look ahead. Finally, guys, I know it's uh, the weekend after next, but to the, the Singapore Grand Prix, uh, looking at last year's results here, it was the win for, for Sergio Perez, Leclerc and Sainz finishing up the podium uh, for Ferrari. But 
Um, this is an exciting one, John. Is this a race you, you often look forward to the Singapore Grand Prix? I love the I love the venue. Mm. I love Singapore. It's a physically very tough circuit because you're in virtually on the equator. So all through the year, you get a lot of heat, but it's also very humid. Uh, tough race, 20, I think it's 24 or something, 26 corners. Uh, it's it's a tough physical race. So what's going to change? I mean, this, <laughs> it's the usual suspects are going to be at the front. And you might see an Alex Albon getting himself up into maybe third or fourth row of the grid. You're going to get one of the two, maybe both McLarens, up on that sort of same front four rows of the grid. I would like to see what Liam Lawson's going to do. Right. I, I thought he's done a great job, and I'm sure he's going to be in the car next weekend because I don't believe Ricardo will be fit to drive either there or in Japan. So he's going to a circuit which, while some drivers have got experience from many other previous seasons, it's a new circuit, it's a street circuit, it's in the part of the world that he's been doing the bulk of his racing. So he's going to feel probably fairly comfortable there. And I just hope that we're going to see a really strong performance as I thought we did do in qualifying at Monza from the stand and driver for Ricardo. Can you see anything, anything crazy happening in this one, Bernie, or, or is it the uh, same old, same old? Well, yeah, Singapore can offer us another one. It's very difficult to overtake, you know, very close to Monaco in that respect. Interestingly, I'm heading out to Singapore, so keep an eye on the weather forecast. This week looks terrible out there, lots of rain, which always brings a lot of drama in Singapore or any street circuit if you get those sorts of conditions. Um, so that's going to be an interesting one to keep an eye on, how that progresses. Obviously, we're a bit away from the event at the minute. Um, but yeah, into the flyaways brings its its own troubles. Even last weekend, we're starting to hear little niggles of reliability issues. So um, Sonoda not making the grade, then Max having to back off at the end of the race. Lewis was doing a lot of temperature management in the brakes. Singapore is tough for the drivers, as, as John alluded to, but it's tough for the teams and it's tough for the cars as well. You know, you get to go from what was a pretty wet European season we've had to sit on the very hot, humid pit wall in Singapore and to keep your focuses a bit more difficult. So for sure, it's going to bring an interesting an interesting aspect out of that. We, we don't see a big change in the finishing order necessarily at this stage, but it will be interesting. And I totally agree with what John said about Liam Lawson. I We interviewed him on the grid in Zandvoort, and to be getting into that car, having not raced it at high fuel, not done a lap in the dry, he looked totally under control. And really glad that he had a week out in Monza. In interesting, I think he will, you know, I think they've said he's going to do Singapore and Japan. So it will be interesting to see where he can take that. It's bad for AlphaTauri, you know, they're on four drivers now this year. It's not a great way to score championship points from where they are. But it's a, an amazing opportunity for Liam. Yeah, fascinated to see how Liam gets on. Liam Lawson at the uh, Marina Bay Street Circuit, for sure. Uh, guys, great stuff, as per usual. Thanks a million for hopping on. That's Bernie Collins, the uh, former head of race strategy for the Aston Martin Formula 1 team and the former F1 race driver, John Watson. John and Bernie, thanks a million. Thank you very much, Jen. Thank you. Great stuff, guys. We'll be back with the next episode of the F1 pod and off the ball, of course, after that Singapore Grand Prix that's up next in a couple of weeks. So we're off next week. Uh, and of course, you can uh, keep listening to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Download them in the F1 pod podcast feed or the off the ball daily podcast feed. And we'll be back with you very soon. See you later. The F1 pod on off the ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One. Yeah, we go to town on it.